Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Distributed Processing of Load and Movement Feedback in the Premotor Network Controlling an Insect Leg Joint. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez, and co-authors, Professor Ansgar Bushkes and Karina Gibahar. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Thanks so much. Nice pronunciation, uh, Jamie. That's, that sounds cool. Hi, Anska and Corinna. Nice to meet you and see you. And, uh, and I really look forward to talking about, you know, multimodal processing in insects. And I think just for the reader, it, it's a fascinating topic because you have to process your different leg information. You have to process speed. You have to process force and everything in, in the millisecond range. And you have to also, let's say in, in mammals for sure, integrate proprioceptive information with vestibular information to understand you know, where your body is. And so studying this in insects, I think is extremely interesting. And so today we'll, we'll talk about multimodal processing of proprioceptive information. And maybe since I assume not everyone is familiar with insect proprioception, maybe Corinna or Anska, could you tell us more about, you know, what are the types of proprioceptors that we find in insect uh, locomotion? Well, if I may start, when it comes to insect locomotion, we need to include not only the moving part of the animal, when sort of the, the situation where the animal is moving, but also when it's standing, keeping a specific type of posture. And there's various kinds of um, sensory information which is contributing to keeping posture and as well to controlling movements of the limbs. And this is for one hand, on one end, um, side, it's proprioceptive information about movements, which is a sort of angles of joints, velocity of um, segments, how they move. And on the other hand, it's uh, the forces and loads um, that the muscles exert actually on the cuticle. Why? the animal is, for example, having the leg on the ground and moving the animal forward, or during standing when external forces are um, affecting the positioning or the cuticle of the leg. These are the two most important key sensory feedbacks that we know of involved in the control of standing and walking of an insect. There's a lot of other kind of sensory information like extra-receptive with hair, touch hairs, which are similar to the skin sensors in vertebrates, as well as muscle stretch receptors. However, as I said, the first two kinds of sensory information and proprioception are the most um, prominent ones. Thanks so much, Anska. You know, insects have the exoskeleton and the endoskeleton, and you talked already about, you know, the cuticle, etc. So, so what specific kind of challenges come with this and what advantages come with this in, in studying proprioception? Do you want to start, Corinna? Yeah, maybe I can start on this. So um, one of the advantages purely from the experimentalist side of it is that it's much easier to access individual sense organs on the exoskeleton. Um, and also once the, the exoskeleton is opened, there's no more so to say, bones in the way of it. So the, the nervous system and all the other sense organs that are on the inside of this exoskeleton are then easily accessible. So it's actually fairly easy for us to actually access these things and also to simulate them individually. And of course, for, um, for the insect, it has, I wouldn't call it advantages or disadvantages, but probably just different types of uh, consequences on, on feedback processing especially regarding load feedback, because that is for the insects a sense on the exoskeleton, so on the outside. 
of the animal, basically. Um, so companyform sensilla, the load sensors are embedded into the exoskeleton, into the cuticle. Um, and so you can consider basically leg segments as hollow tubes um, along which the force then travels and acts and uh, can be distorted also. While for mammals or vertebrates with a fixed in endoskeleton, um, it's more like a solid rod or bar, um, the, the bone at, to which the um, muscles and also the, the sense organs that measure force and movement are attached. Um, so it's a very different kind of morphological uh, sense organs, but also um, the type of feedback that is sensed um, will probably have some important differences. While the functional aspects, so once it is processed by the nervous system, that again um, is pretty analog between uh, mammals uh, or endoskeleton and exoskeleton animals. But yeah, so the, on, the, on the sense organ side, um, it might have, uh, or it will have some important differences. If I may add, there's, there's one thing that I think shows the, one may say, beauty of the situation of being able to work with an animal exoskeleton, because what it allows you is to disentangle the muscle structure from the sensory structures. Because essentially in the vertebrates, you have the GTOs, the Golgi tendon organs, serving the analog function and signals as the Campaniform sensilla. And they are attached to the muscle and the bone. The company from Zanzilla and insect are essentially detached from the muscle, which means that you can essentially stimulate them independently of any muscle action at present, which, which can have um, certain advantages. And the same holds, by the way, for the movement feedback provided by, for example, internal chordotonal organs, which are in parallel to the muscle, but not in the muscle as the 1A efferents. So that allows you to, to essentially dissect the sensory structures from um, essentially the actuator by during the, the stimulation. Wonderful. So, so it basically, it's much easier to unravel the differential contribution of, of stretch and muscle length and force, etc., because of the endoskeleton. Very cool. And and uh, I can imagine that these insights could be great for robotics, correct? So there should be implications for robotics. And, and do you think if we design robots, we should design them as an exoskeleton or endoskeleton? So if you consider like biologically plausible systems, or if you want to implement biologically plausible systems into a robot, then probably the exoskeleton is the, might be the easier way to go in the first place because of the um so you basically have fixed structures that you internally um then try to control and um the the implications that we think that the multimodal processing might have is especially relevant um that both for biological systems and for robots once the signal leaves basically this the sensory structure or the sensor in the robot it's an electrical signal that's the same in robots as in um, the nervous system once the sensory pathways merge the nervous system only sees an electrical signal and so to know um, how these signals are integrated into a common framework and then generate this behavior of flexibility that we see in the insects um, would hopefully uh, enable robots to be or biologically plausible robots who have similar flexibility and be adaptive or show adaptive behavior um, at different terrains or in different behaviors. Yeah, and, and perhaps one may add that 
it's a for me it has always been because I've cooperated for for some time with engineers. It's always very easy to say that they will profit from knowing about the biological solutions, but we should get straight on one point. An engineer may find a technical solution for any given problem. However, he may be interested in biological solutions when it comes to including various functions, flexibility, adaptivity, and if he or she is using specific kinds of simulations and models for generating the controller of a, a robot. And in the past decade, and that is quite interesting, it has become more and more fashionable, interesting, promising that roboticists actually use neural networks as controller architectures for robots. For example, the beautiful word by Puramata Manon Pong or by Nick Chichinsky or by Roger Quinn, they actually no longer generate only software-driven uh, solutions, but they generate simulations of neural circuits that take advantage from knowledge on, of, about biological systems. And essentially, we are currently collaborating with um, Nick Chichinsky on a large-scale grant, um, essentially aiming for that, where we actually try to look at the solutions that the nervous system can offer to roboticists and theoreticians but for three completely different phylogenetic traits in animals. It's a, it's a slug, a, a mammal, a vertebrate, and an insect. And we try to generalize from the network solutions. And engineers are highly interested in that because when it comes to an end, even the best robotic solutions we have these days are still, um, suffering is a bad word, but are still not perfect in generating behavioral flexibility to the same extent as their biological counterparts. Well, Ansgar, since we're talking probably also to an American audience, there, there is one perfect solution, and that was Iron Man, you know, Tony Stark. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously uses an exoskeleton, which, which works very flexible and, and uh, belongs to the Avengers. So just uh, as an aside... <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but you talked about uh, central processing and neural networks, and I think that was the focus of, of your study. And, um, and one fascinating aspect is that you're working with non-spiking interneurons. And again, let's just come to the general terms. You know, we often think about three distinct parts of a neuron. You know, have the dendrites that processes postsynaptic information primarily. Then you have the soma, which in mammals also plays a critical role in synaptic processing. And then you have the axon with the output synapses. Now, in the insects, it seems that the dendrites, they basically do most of the processing, but they have input and outputs, correct? And basically process this information in a non-spiking manner, which I think is, is not so well described in, in vertebrates. I think in the retina and the olfactory cortex, we have some some indications, but but I think when it comes to invertebrates, you know, that's that's the way. And maybe it's due to the, the fact that the soma itself sits so far away and, and is is probably not so much involved. But there's a huge literature on non-spiking processing. Mm. So could you talk about this now in the context of your study and how it in integrates these different modalities? So, um, yeah, how it all started um, was during my, like the start of my PhD that we actually focused on the non-spiking interneurons and we know a lot about how they integrate movement information. So that was kind of the classical way to go with the non-spikers, at least in the second segment, also to a large part in the locus to uh, determine how this network 
integrates movement information um, about tibia movements, so basically flexion extension of the tibia. And there it was known that it's a distributed network, that they do antagonistic processing, so that some of these parallel pathways support the motor output, others are opposing it. Um, and also that the responses of the non-spikers to these sensory inputs are very diverse. So um, there's phasic input, tonic input, um, excitation, phasic inhibition, mixtures of it. And we didn't know about load feedback. So we basically knew about a lot about the sensory side of load feedback and about the motor side of it. So how different um, types of sensory input generate different types of motor reflexes. But we didn't basically, so the middle part of it was kind of missing in the knowledge. And so we started by looking for, well, not even looking for non-spikers that process load information, but generally recording from non-spikers and seeing whether some of them actually are also responding to load. And that actually came as a kind of surprise to me at least, um, and I think also Ansgar, that all of them were responding to load information. So this was not some specific part of the network that is integrating load and movement information, but actually all of them, and also to different groups of company from Sensilla. So we tested different, so the TBI company from Sensilla and the more proximal to hunter female company from Sensilla, which are very different groups in terms of also what people think, that what these groups of CS are doing. And all of this information goes into the network of non-spikers that coordinate action around the femotibia joint. And we think that the, or so, so we have this distributed multimodal processing in the non-spikers. And one advantage of having it in the non-spiking network is definitely, or we think it is definitely, um, is that we can use fewer neurons and have these graded potentials as a way of not losing or gaining more information compared to spiking networks. Because with a spiking neuron, if you compare one single spiking neuron to one single non-spiking neuron, then the spiking neuron is more or less a digital um, element in the network. It can generate a zero or a one um, and contain information about in the, or in its timing of the spikes, but that's about it. While in the non-spiking neurons, we have these graded potentials that really carry analog signals from the sensory side and apparently also from different sides um, or different elements of the sensory input um, and can therefore modulate the, the motor output much more precisely or more flexible. Corinna, that's uh, totally fascinating because I think one of the big challenges is the timing, you know, because uh, obviously all the different proprioceptive information is processed at different times, yet you have to integrate it and, and create a simultaneous impression of all these. So, so perhaps about avoiding spiking and avoiding conduction velocity and times makes it easier to, to process information that comes in together. Is this kind of like uh, how you think why non-spiking is a huge advantage and why the integration at the same time works so well? We actually, so at first we thought so, and I think in some aspects it's still true, um, but we're actually so currently working on a manuscript we're hoping to submit soon, where we actually looked at temporal aspects of load and movement integration. And it seems that there are some differences um, and that they're not all basically covered by the non-spiking network. And so this is, I think, a very important aspect to not only look at the spatial summation, which we did in this manuscript here, um, but also the temporal aspects of it. Because as you said, it has to be integrated into one coherent framework of basically what is going on sensory-wise. And so the temporal aspect is very important. Um, the non-spikers can, to some degree, basically smooth 
um, some of the incoming input because they are kind of slow responding or in a graded fashion, not as fast as a single spike, but not all of it apparently is covered um, by the non-specking network. So that's, there's more to come. <laughs> wow. And I hope you submit it to Journal of Neurophysiology. It's a totally fascinating question. And do we know anything about like the synaptic integration? Do you do these, uh, you know, EPSPs and, and do they have different kind of EPSPs that, that some made differently or, or is it too difficult? Because I think, you know, like Corinna, I have so much respect for your work because it's so difficult. So maybe before we go further into the timing, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you encountered? Because, you know, like for a vertebrate guy, sticking in an electrode into a soma is much more simple than sticking an, an electrode into like a five micron thick dendrite. So, so what were your challenges and your approach to, to study that? Yeah, so in the beginning, it was a bit like, so it started off a bit frustrating because I was basically looking for the things that we were taught not to look for during like the, my master's study. So you, you typically, as a student, you look for action potentials. And now I was specifically told to look for something that doesn't generate action potentials. And then, so at first I had kind of the, the, the game, whether it's a glia cell or something similar, or whether I'm sticking somewhere not in the nervous system or whether it's actually a non-spiker. Um, but that, so that is something that actually takes, I, I can only say experience. So at some time, at some point, it's just started working. Um, one of the challenges that actually shaped my work. So we started this, this project with a bit of a different direction um, was that non-spikers are individually or also other neurons, but specifically the non-spikers for my project, they're individually identifiable. But for that, you have to find them. And so we initially thought we would go for some specific non-spikers. And then at some point, I had a meeting um, with Ansgar and also Jochen telling them, it's, I'm not finding it. Um, we have to switch. Uh, we have to take a broader approach. Um, and after that, of course, I found the neuron I was looking for. So the, the main challenge, I would say, is that we can't see what we're looking for. So it's we, we can't label, especially non-spikers, because they're not projecting anywhere. So we can't stain them before with with dyes or um, retrograde dyes or anything so it's basically looking for some landmarks in the ganglion um, and then um, yeah crossing your thumbs and hoping for the best so it's the the targeting of specific neurons I would say that's the major challenge um, of course there's also but that's probably true for all intracellular recordings, the, the trouble of if something doesn't work, you're not really sure where the problem in the whole process is, whether it's your electrodes or just you took too long to uh, dissect your, the animal. Um, but the identification, that's, um, yeah, <laughs> there yeah. was an issue for a long time. Corinne, I, I probably you know that Anska and I were postdocs together and we would like uh, literally be pretty competitive, you know, who, who catches the 515 first and who the 566 and would sometimes go till midnight. And funny enough, Anska always won when it comes to 515 and I won when it comes to 566 because we each had our favorite neurons to, to catch. And that leads me now to another question. You know, there has been a, a revolution in, in, in Drosophila, you know, molecular and genetics. And I think one of the, the big questions now will be, can we learn from Drosophila identified neurons and can we apply them also to, let's say the stick insect where we know so much more about the physiology and it's so much more accessible. Like I, th I read, for example, something about the 13BA, et cetera. And, 
And uh, are you able to, to connect them and learn from this? So I start and you go ahead, Ansgar. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's the, the beautiful work from Agarwal et al. from the Tuttle lab. Um, I think that was also the 13B alpha. And that's super interesting to see that some of these network archi architecture that we, for example, with the distributed processing that we know for, of um, in the stick insect and the locust is also present in Drosophila or seems to be present in Drosophila. Um, I think Drosophila in general offers many advantages to the methodology and also to some different types of access to the network. But especially in my project, I think it's at least in the current level um, of methods, my project wouldn't have been possible yet in Drosophila. Um, so for example, if you consider not just because of its size, but um, my setup usually contains two different sensory stimulators, so mechanical stimulators of the load and the movement sensors. Then I have two to three extracellular electrodes and now one to two intracellular electrodes in there. And that's giving me a complete or a more, not a complete, a complete probably would be all of, the, all of the neurons at once, but a more or broader view of what is currently going on in the network. And I think this type of, general view and also the the search for just looking at the entire or not the entire but broad aspect of the network i think so far that is not possible in drosophila but i'm i think it's very exciting to see what is currently being done in drosophila and what isn't coming next so i think there would be a great advantage to basically learning one from each other um implementing the knowledge from drosophila and stick insects and vice versa yeah, I think it's, it's amazing times we are facing or we can use, particularly because I think it's absolutely perfect to be able to choose the best model animal for, for your research. And in that sense, as you know, our lab is also working on Drosophila. We are using genetic uh, modified lines to, for example, switch on and off sensory neurons and so forth. What I think what um, sort of an old system like the stick insect, which is non attractable at the moment on the uh, neurogenetic side can offer is that essentially the setup of the animal allows for a broad scope. And for example, when you look at what Corinna has found in her thesis work was completely unexpected because everybody agreed on distributed processing is there, full stop. Everybody agreed on there is specific responses to load and movement feedback, either or or in combination. But everybody was more or less ex um, expecting that there will be a subdivision in the networks that actually process movement and load information in some way, at some point, at least. And Corinna was able to essentially push our knowledge much further on because she was not, how should I say, she was not um, restricted by any methodological approach to identify one specific subset of neuron or one specific, she could essentially go for load and movement feedback in the broadest sense and see whether there are specific neuronal elements that process this information dedicated or in a distributed fashion. And so I think within the next five or 10 years, there will be emergence, sort of an emerging sort of crossing in, in the um, possibilities between Drosophila and, and, and larger insects. And it will be essentially possible to do the same thing in the fruit fly, which we were at the moment profiting from the setup of the stick insect nervous system and the knowledge we have. And there's one thing to add to challenges Corinna had in finding the neurons. 
one important aspect for finding the neurons, and that's exactly what you quoted, Nino, the 515 and 566 story, is we know what they do when the animal flies or fictively flies. And that's the same for the pre-motor non-spiking intimates. You know how they respond to movement feedback from, for example, the FCO. They do the same thing, everyone, every single animal. The E4 does the same thing, or the E3, I1, I3. And in that sense, that gives the possibility not to look for a population of neurons, but to get always back to the same neuron and say, give me the answer to my question. Ansgar, I think this is really an important point, and I have to make a plug for the invertebrate systems, because it was never easier to record from a neuron in an insect versus a mammal, but, but we had the identified neurons that we can come back to revisit on a different behavioral context. And I think you know, what Corinna has done now for the non-spikers is exactly that. And if you would have looked only for one certain information, you would have never basically no. found. I think this is exactly. a very, very important, very, very important point. And, and I think the future will also show the integration between these different systems. You know, we have seen this in the mammal system where right. you started with uh, mouse genetics and now, you know, you have all these viral vectors that you can use also in monkeys and and uh, in the future, also in humans. And we are getting slowly towards this identified neuron approach that has really dominated and advanced the invertebrate field and, and conceptually and also uh, experimentally. So, so I think uh, it's this, this is really a beautiful, beautiful study to, to show, you know, why it is important to study this very complex question. You know, like, I mean, how do you process timing of proprioceptive information. And as I said, I think to me, it's still astonishing that you, you don't have separate lines for separate proprioceptive uh, information. And this is a very old finding, actually. You could say the job of the fast, immediate reflex answers is done by the direct connections from efferents to modern units. But when you, when you look essentially for the solutions the nervous system has, then yes, the fact that you may find direct connections and you, or you may not be able to show them simply gives you a glimpse on the processing. So it, may be, it might be good to have a direct connection if you need it fast and uh, reliable. But as that is not potentially the answer the nervous system is having for generating specific reflexes, which you still have to tune in amplitude. And, and th there's another study, and, and Corinna will allude more on that, where she essentially then went for the next step and said, okay, what is load information doing to movement information process? And that's a highly exciting result because she can show, if I may say, and that Corinna should definitely take over because she can show two things. Number one, load information decreases the gain. And number two, it's specifically the distributed network that this processing is using and profiting from. And perhaps, Corinna, you should hand over to you at that point. Yeah, I may, may say some words on that. So basically, we, we all already covered this actually at some point uh, during this discussion that the advantage of the insect was to disentangle like the load movement or, or load from movement feedback and the stimuli. Um, but in like an insect that was walking, these are not disentangled. So that's basically a very artificial situation that we generated to be able to tell where these pathways um, are integrated. Um, and that was very important for this study here. Um, but in principle, in the actually moving animal, or even if it's mistaken sector not moving all the time, then the, the load and movement feedback will probably 
only makes sense in the context of each other. So there, there might be some instances where there's more or less only movement feedback, but probably movement feedback will in most instances be combined or integrated with load information or the other way around, load information in the context of movement. And so basically after this study that we now published here, the, the question was how do they affect each other? How do they interact? At which levels of the network do they actually interact? Um, and so that's where we went after awards. And that's very exciting because as Ansgar said, so there's this changing gain that we can observe at different levels of the sensory motor pathways um, where load is actually, even though it is integrated within the same distributed network, it also has lateral effects, so to say, um, at different levels of the network on movement signal processing. Um, so we can kind of have a context dependency um, of movement processing. And yeah, I think um, that's a very exciting thing, like next step to take it to the, basically we separated in the, this study, the load of movement feedback, and now we're taking it back together. Corinna uh, and Ansgar, this is really fascinating, but I think one of the, let's say the elephant in the room is now, you have this multimodal processing of all information, but now the animal is standing and when it starts walking, you have these re reflex reversals. So, and the reflex reversal doesn't work at the same way in the different organs. So how is this reflex reversal now controlled? Because you will activate some pathways and, 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 and deactivate or inhibit others, correct? So how well, does it work? Well, perhaps I start out here because that there's actually some, some exciting new insights actually published in, in the Journal of Neurophysiology in 2019, where it was um, a graduate student was able to show together with um, Jochen Schmidt and a number of colleagues, they did a methodological tour de force essentially in showing uh, what kind of influence descending modulatory neurons from the saposophageal ganglion have on the, th on the thoracic nerve cord and the network. And they were able to show that essentially it's obviously octopamine which is involved in um, switching or changing the weight of the distributed pathways in fashion or in favor of generating reflex reversal compared to um, the resistance reflex. And so uh, Tommy Stoltz, it was his thesis, and, and, and Jochen Schmidt um, showed that very nicely. This number one. Number two, for early on, you, when it comes to your question on what does it mean for the distributed network, essentially it means that we were able to show that essentially the, the gain, the weight of the synaptic inputs to the individual pathways is changing in a task-dependent way, which means it can be sort of scaling up excitation in a neuron which would oppose the resistance reflex and thereby support an assistance reflex and so on. So I could give very many examples. However, what it means is essentially that with a distributed network, you can easily even switch the sign of a motor response. You do not need to invent any new dedicated pathway or switch one thing completely off, which is actually in disfavor of serving function because during stance phase, you may like to uh, reinforce movement and force feedback. However, you would still like to tune the magnitude. And that has been shown by Turgai Akai and in his thesis work, 400 years ago, no, this was in 2006, together with me, and, and sorry to say, also published in Journal of Neurophysiology, that essentially it's load information who's, who's actually boosting the probability and likelihood for reflex reversal towards movement information. So 
and, and that brings probably Corinna, when I hand over to her now, to the next exciting questions is, as we have now the pathways at hand, now we can play with the tasks and look how, how are the individual pathways changing and what is their role? Yeah, so that's basically the kind of where we went um, with the, the interaction of low-time movement feedback because we, um, so I've read the, the archive papers many times. Um, and the, the, the interesting part about load, load feedback affecting the reflexive reversal of a movement signal. So that is basically, that is already very like, the definition of multimodal. So if the movement reflects to, or the reflex to a movement stimulus, and that is reversed, and the likelihood of this reversal is increased um, when there's load present. And so when we looked for the interaction um, between load and movement feedback, we weren't specifically targeting the, the reflex reversal, but we found that the gain of the motor neurons is actually altered in a way that it would support the reflex reversal. So it wasn't um, in our setup, in our paradigm, because the animals weren't basically activated or elicited to move. Um, so we didn't see actual reflex reversal, but it was the gain was shifted towards potentially enabling a reflex reversal. And so that was very nice to see that the, this multimodal processing, and it happened at the level of um, the non-spiking interneurons. So there in the, this distributed network, we, we could already see the effects that would then finally on the motor output level um, alter the gain um, and shift towards a reflex reversal. So that was very nice um, to basically confirm or find similar results of confirming to um, what Akai found in 2006. Very fascinating. Of course, I get very sentimental when you mention the subesophageal ganglion. So, so can we think about this as a, a, a hierarchically organized system that, that the subesophageal ganglion is like the brainstem in, in the mammal that that controls more the, the changes within the spinal cord, which is in your case, the thoracic ganglion, and, and thereby shifts kind of from one behavior to the other. Do you, do you see it like this? Well, to be honest, I think even though that, that you emphasized and, and Corinna and me, the beauty of, of the insect nervous system to work on, I think we are far away from being able to answer that question because yes, there's aspects in the subosophageal ganglion that we also find in the brainstem. Good, fine. However, when you look at um, essentially command neurons that you find in the um, brainstem of vertebrates, for example, those switching on uh, locomotion or those maintaining locomotion or uh, the reticulospinal set of neurons essentially with their activity controlling the intensity of locomotion, such neurons you find in, for example, in the fruit fly, and we recently published work on that um, in different parts of the brain, which means that essentially you can have a command neuron for forward walking in a rostrally neuromere of the brain and not in the SLG. And that's sufficient to essentially, when you activate P9 on either side of the animal, you can activate either side of the drosophila to walk on the right-hand side forward or the left-hand side. If both are activated, both, you can do it. And that's the beautiful work by Salil Bidaya and Christian Scott's lab, as well as you can essentially activate neurons in the protocerebrum, which will essentially um, make the animal walk backwards. So in that sense, I'm a bit hesitant. There is very nice work by or a hypothesis um, by Hirsch and Straussfeld on the um, evolutionary, essentially, conservation of specific brain parts with reference to the molecular genetic um, roots. But I think we are, I would say we are far away 
if we would say modulation is important, then I think I can agree with you. There is evidence for modulatory sets of neurons in the SLG, where you similarly find aspects of function in, in the, the vertebrate brainstem. You know, I think it's very important aspect that you just mentioned, because, you know, like also in mammals, you know, proprioception is highly distributed, it goes into the forebrain, mm -hmm. the cerebellum, etc. You have your motor mm -hmm. cortex, the somatosensory cortex. And, and so you think basically in insects, it's similar that you have on one hand, a distributed network within the thoracic ganglion, but then also distributed over the protocerebrum yeah. and subesophageal ganglion, etc. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That, that's so, really interesting. So we may we, we may hear more about that with 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 Keito and his group actually who are specifically looking at uh, ascending information from the BNC to the brain and what they will tell us about that and the principles or the logic of um, information flow. So now now of course I have a question. So your your non-spiking interneurons are processing the multimodal information. Are they also the central pattern generator, or do you still believe there is no CPG in insects? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think I have to start. I think, let's put it this way. We do not have the uh, circuitry for um, CPG for walking in neither the stick insect nor any other insect. What we do have essentially is evidence for premotor non-spiking interneurons to be elements in individual joint CPGs, which means we have evidence for modules, and not to make it complicated and to get to your question, some of the premotor non-spiking interneurons are elements of CPGs, full stop. And they can be um, of specific joint CPGs, for example, the thoracococcal joint and another one for the femotibia joint, okay? Um, however, linking that to their role in sensory processing is at present, I would say, merely possible because we have not yet linked. Essentially, it would take the study from Corinna into the active uh, mode of operation of those networks, which is definitely one of the things that we want to do as a next step and see what kind of um, sort of properties can emerge from the sensory effect, the, the multimodal effect on specific premotor non-spiking internets with respect to pattern generation. Yeah. Yeah, Ansgar, and, and um, I mean, you, you kind of already indicated, and, and do you believe basically that you have also probably uh, like coupled oscillators here where, you know, you have a CPG for, for the femur and, and for, for these different segments of the, the leg? Do you think like this? I think one has always to be careful. I think we can, we can come up and uh, muscarinic agonists are a good tool for doing so, for um, creating experimental situations where you can profit from the fact that you have independent independency of the modules of the CPGs, which means that you can have different rhythms, uh, a different pattern generating uh, network activities in the femotibia joint or the thoracococcal joint. However, this has nothing to do with how the system will operate in vivo, which may mean, and that goes back to a study by Haglund et al., a um, very beautiful study published in PNAS two, in 2013, where they, looked, where they used the lumbar spinal cord of the mouse and essentially took the um, neurogenetic tool of channel rhodopsin um, sort of expression in those neurons within the different lumbar segments, and, and they were able to activate each ventral root to rhythmic activity independently from the others. And specifically, what do I mean by that? It means essentially that the fact of modularity does not mean that the system 
shows this independence at work when it comes to walking. It may be a highly coupled system then by central and peripheral feedback. But that's exactly what we need to understand if we want to understand the operation of a multi-segmented locomotor system. Because they do something more than moving forward or scratching or moving backward or losing foothold and so forth. So essentially, I think one shouldn't overdo this modularity. However, it's simply there. And I think there's enough examples from the mud puppy to the, uh, to the lamprey, to the mouse, to the stick insect, and even to crayfish, when you look at the recent, recent work, to, to say, well, yeah, there's modularity in the CPGs. Yeah, perfect. Thanks so much for, what is it, uh, making it straight? Uh, Ansgar, uh, mm? can you give us a little bit of a background on how you assembled your team here and, and how Corinna came into the play and what was the initiation of this whole study? Well, the initiation of the, the study, actually, there's, there's two, two threads. One is an individual one because science goes with individuals and with people and with commitment to science. And a second one, which is a scientific one. And the, the scientific one, uh, may I start with that one? is the work that we have done in the past 10 or 15 years with Sasha Zill in disentangling the role or identifying the role of load and force feedback on the motor activity. And where we were able to show that this feedback is highly specific. It's not just Kempany forms and Zilla being activated. Actually, in the stick insect and in other insects, those load sensors come along in a highly specified um, system where some of them only measure forces vertically, full stop. Others do it ventrally, rostral, caudal, and so forth, in the leg plane outside. So immediately the question for me arose, what does that mean for proprioceptive feedback processing, specifically in the light of the fact that we have also the movement feedback per joint? So having a lot of knowledge on the femotibia joint, I was looking for somebody who would essentially like to meet the challenge to combine the study of movement and load feedback on specifically with respect to one leg joint in control, and that's the femotibial joint. That's the one part, that's the science part of the story. And that hasn't been done in any other system, which means that it was not only interesting, but to my opinion or to my perspective, important. And then I had the opportunity um, to meet Corinna Geberhardt, who was in our master's program after she has had excellent uh, bachelor and she was actually offered um, by our observation the chance to enter the fast track program in neuroscience at Cologne which means that essentially your master's study program becomes the first part of your PhD thesis and so Corinna was taken up in that program and I was amazed by her experimental skills by her conceptual strength by her combination of taking advice, but pushing it, pushing the solution always a step forward. And I'm saying that even though that she's around and I, yeah, I'm blushing. I, <laughs> <laughs> so and that has happened quite some time, several times in the past years. And I think, I think, how should I say it's, it's ideas and people that have to come together. Otherwise, science cannot progress. And when it comes to the speed of progression, it's even more Fantastic. Corinna, I, I can only second what Ansgar said because I mean, like how you respond to the questions. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Corinna, let me 
let, let us know how you got into the insect, you know, like in the stick insect. What, what, what drew, drew you to this project? Um, there was actually, so um, it sounds a bit cheeky, but there was one lecture that Ansgar gave in the, in the bachelor's, actually, in the, the main, uh, one of the main courses. Um, and we went out of this a couple of students and nobody really, like, we understood maybe 40% of it. And I was like, he was so enthusiastic about the stick insect work and the, the sensory motor processing that I was like, I don't understand it, but I want to understand it. And that's kind of how I landed in the bachelor thesis um, and did a project actually on a different type of stick insect and also slightly different behavior. And that's basically, I got stuck. So um, in a positive way. Um, so afterwards I, um, talked about uh, talked with Ansgar about possible projects. So when I entered the master about possible projects for the PhD, and he actually gave me a choice of a couple of different projects. And I I basically went in for the non-spiking interneurons because there, there was something that also during the, the studies, we never really, like it was always action potentials. And so non-spiking was something new. And so that's how I got into um, the master thesis and then basically from there into the PhD, because as Ansgar said, this reach the research fast track is actually very nice because during the masters I could practice. <laughs> and then when it got serious during the PhD, I could, um, or I had some experience already with the non-spikers. And what I liked about this project more or less the most was that even though we had a fixed, um, or initially it was Ansgar, and then at some point me too, um, we had a fixed project or question in mind. Um, but when the the interesting surprises happened, um, we went for them. So there was um, it wasn't too fixed to not allow some flexibility in the questions and also in the experiments. So initially it was supposed to at some point go to the walking animal and then there was so much to discover in the resting animal already that we decided to to basically stick to this part um, first um, and then some future PhD student may <laughs> may walk uh, the animal and so that was very nice um, in the project that I could also implement my own ideas or suggestions um, as they came basically. Fantastic I mean that's how science works correct I mean you have to be driven by by enthusiasm, and then you can also overcome all these challenges of, of recording from this very, very difficult neuron. So it's very, very impressive, Corinna. And uh, great job, Anska. You found the team. So can you, uh, at the end, maybe um, each of you can give us, like, uh, what are the important take-home messages for, for the readers to remember? So maybe let's uh, start with Corinna and then Anska. <laughs> Um, yeah, for me, so apart from it's multimodal and it's distributed, which are kind of the, the main take-home message, I would say, from, from the paper, which are the obvious ones, um, my, my personal one would be that um, it's important to consider load and movement feedback uh, like separately for, for studying how they are actually, like how the pathways work, but then to find the way to combine them again, because it's the one in the context of the other, um, at least in natural behaviors, there's load, load and movement feedback coming together. I think that's important to what we've shown here, that they are actually integrated in this whole network of neurons, that this is not something that is processed separately and then comes together at the motor output side, but that it's actually um, being fused already at, an, at a very early stage in the network. And I think for me, the important take home message from this study is 
distributed processing cannot be linked to one individual sensory modality, but it may be, at least when it comes to the processing of proprioceptive information, it may be ubiquitous for the network and within the network. And that has a drastic consequence because in the end, it renders dedicated pathway concepts potentially for highly specific tasks only. For example, central pattern generating generation genome. There you have specific roles within the network for generating individual phases. And that may even change, as we already know. However, when it comes to sensory motor processing, I think we may have to reconsider the idea of the so-called sensory motor information transfer to an extent that in the end may leave us with the question, how is the overall network tuned for a task-specific optimal motor output? How is it coming about to have the gains of individual pathways and their co-processing of multimodal inputs? How is that tuned for the overall output? And, and I think that's, at, at least to my humble perspective, that's one of the most interesting questions that I think neuroscience has to resolve. Because if we need to want to understand the high adaptivity of motor behavior and behavior per se that any nervous system of an animal can generate, then this question is of immediate and importance for answering and for finding the biological solutions for that. Great. Yeah, Corinna and Ansgar, many, many thanks for, for giving us this insight into the multimodal processing of of insects and uh, specifically the stick insect. And we, we learned a lot. And uh, Corinna, I, I wish you all the very, very best for your future. And uh, thank you. Hopefully uh, you, you will have a great postdoc and, and uh, a rising career. And uh, Ansgar, keep going. There are still many questions open in, in understanding this processing. So thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all the very best. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the invitation, Nino. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.